Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. My name is Roy Ford Brown. I am the host of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic normally looks at US and UK politics and its ramifications on the globe. But in the eight years plus that I've been doing this podcast, I've never dealt with migrants, refugees, asylum seekers who are at the sharp end, actually, of geopolitics. It's because of war, pestilence, famine and economic reasons that people get up and leave home, leave the place where they were born and try and find a better life for themselves elsewhere. And it's with that in mind that because of the utter tragic situation, dare I say people are calling it a slaughter of African migrants trying to get into Spain, that I thought we really do need to take a look at this. I think that this is something which has been brushed underneath the carpet, so to speak. The images are just utterly shocking and horrendous. All I can say is the video that I saw was akin to fish out out of water which were dying, just occasionally moving, and then to see policemen just stood around whilst these people were obviously dying in their dozens was utterly horrendous. So today, to discuss the incident on the 24th of June at the Morocco-Spanish border... And, and the Spanish town of Malia, we have Kartik Raj from Human Rights Watch. Hello, Kartik. How are you today? Hey, Royfield. Thanks for having me. I would say I'm happy to talk about this, but uh, but that's just really the wrong word. It's, what happened was just an appalling tragedy and a really just sorry loss of life. Just before we play the first clip and give the framing of actually what happened, tell us about Human Rights Watch and what is actually is your is your department? What exactly do you do for the organisation? Sure. A human Rights Watch is an international human rights NGO, non-governmental organization. We work in about 100 countries around the world. We work on all sorts of human rights issues, ranging from torture and slavery to the right to health and the right to water and the right to education. I work within one part of the organization called the Europe and Central Asia Division, which is the region 
a regional division that looks at uh, human rights in this in this part of the world. This particular event that we're talking about happened at the external border, the external frontier of Europe, where Europe borders North Africa. And, you know, one of the issues that we look at in, in the team that I work on and follow and monitor and advocate around is the treatment of asylum seekers, refugees and migrants. And that's what brought us to, to this particular event. And, and I guess what led you to invite me to speak with you. This is the moment an attempt by hundreds of people trying to cross the border between Morocco and Spain turned deadly. Migrants desperately tried to scale a 12-metre iron fence, whilst Moroccan security forces can be seen shooting them with tear gas canisters. Eventually, the fence collapsed under the weight, sending dozens of migrants and asylum seekers to the ground. This is just one example of repeated attempts made by migrants to cross from Nador in Morocco to the Spanish enclave of Melilla. The official death toll is currently disputed. Whilst the Moroccan government places the number of fatalities at 23, the Spanish non-governmental organisation Walking Borders says the reality is 37. Videos and photos that emerged in the days following the deaths have sparked outrage and condemnation by several human rights organisations and officials. And demonstrations have taken place across Spain and Morocco amid mounting calls for an international independent investigation. What actually happened? Give us the Human Rights Watch version of events. What actually happened, right? That that's part of really part of why we're why we published what we did when we're after the events is because establishing the facts and establishing the facts not in like this kind of like metaphysical sense, but just in terms of what happened on the day is so important in order to then hold people to account if something went wrong or when something went wrong. What we understand happened was that about two thousand people, an estimate, tried to enter Spanish territory in Melilla from Moroccan territory on the other side of the border, outside of Nad. The vast majority of them were African migrants and refugees. The word used in in Spanish is sub-Saharan. It's not a word I like using very much, but what they mean is people who are from Africa, but not North Africa. And this is a really, you know, highly securitized border. One of the, probably one of the most fortified external borders of the European Union. It's got a twin fence about anywhere between six and 12 meters high, depending on where you are. And at this particular border post called the Barrio Chino, it's, I would guess, about eight meters high, six to eight meters high. There's two fences and a space in between, and and I guess the you know the migrants tried to to scale the fence and get through, and we had law enforcement on both sides of the border, Moroccan law enforcement, border guards on on the Moroccan side, Spanish Guardia Civil on the Spanish side, trying to stop this uh, this sort of like attempt on the fence from happening or being successful. Now, in the little clip that you played, you the person who does the voiceover talks about. The Moroccan guards firing tear gas. What we've seen in the footage actually appears to be Spanish civil guard firing tear gas. And the Moroccan border police sort of engaged more in direct physical force, kicking, beating, punching, hitting with bats. But, you know, that's why establishing the facts is so important. You know, and when we talk about establishing facts, let me just give you one example about why this is important. Right. So the, the Spanish authorities, Spanish government assigned the National Human Rights Ombudsman to, as one of the two people tasked with investigating this event and establishing the facts. As of yesterday, which was, I think, three weeks after the events, 
he's on the record in the public domain in, in Spain saying he still hasn't received any footage from the border, right? So it, this, this is why kind of like going through the footage, seeing precisely who did what to whom and what happened when is, is so important to establish the facts and also to, you know, then go on through the remaining pieces of identifying those injured, identifying those who died, notifying their next of kin, find, you know, establishing who was responsible for any acts of violence that were unlawful, holding them to account and so on. So this doesn't happen again. Let's go back, Kartik, and let's kind of kind of establish the geopolitical picture of where we actually are. So there are two small Spanish towns which are geographically situated actually in North Africa, and they border Morocco. These have been Spanish towns for centuries, and Morocco was at one point a French and Spanish colony. When Morocco got its independence, the Spanish retreated somewhat, but kept these two small towns, which are geographically said, actually in the continent of Africa. I'll try and summarise a little bit what, what Royfield said, because the, the voice broke up, right? Spain has these two small pieces of territory in North Africa, Ceuta and Melilla, along with a, cu- a few other tiny little peninsulas and islands. But Ceuta and Melilla are the sort of two main settlements. They're enclaves of, of Spain in North Africa. Geographically, they're in North Africa, Politically, they're, in, they're, they're part of Spain. They fall outside of the sort of customs part of the European Union. They're outside of the Schengen area, if any of you know what that is, the sort of common travel area within the European Union. So it's kind of weird kind of zone of indistinction. And it's a little, it's a sort of a leftover colonial possession, much the way that, you know, Gibraltar is in Spain as a, 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 a British overseas territory or, you know, a little tip of corner of Cuba, Guantanamo Bay belongs to the United States Navy. And and this this border has been sort of increasingly fortified over the over the sort of first 20 years of, of this century it, in an effort to keep out migrants and refugees trying to enter European territory through Ceuta and Melilla. Now, Royfield, I think, asked, you know, what we'd seen in terms of trends over the last last couple of years. And I think the pandemic plays a really important, really important moment in, in, in all of this sort of like assessment of how many people get across the border and where people are stuck. When the pandemic came, that border between Spain and Morocco effectively just closed. So on a day to day basis, tens of thousands of Moroccans cross the border every day to do work in Spain in Melilla, and then cross the border at the end of the evening or at the end of their work shift to go back home to Morocco. Those sort of day-to-day flows of people just completely stopped during the pandemic for a long while. And then the numbers of people who were encamped on the hillsides and sleeping rough on the Moroccan side, migrants, asylum seekers, these mixed flows of people also grew during that time. And over this period of the pandemic, you know, the couple of years that we've been through, there have been a a few sort of like mass attempts to sort of break through the fence or to to get through. In May of last year, 2021, there was a there was a period of a few days actually where an estimated 10,000 people entered Ceuta, a mixture of Moroccan nationals and people from other parts of Africa and and parts beyond really sort of basically just walked over the beach and walked over, walked around the sort of the where the beach ends and through waded through the sea and tried to get into Spain. And at that point in May 2021, the reports were that the Moroccan 
border police just said, you know what, we're not going to stop you from going, just go for it. And, you know, they, they basically stopped being any sort of obstacle to them and let, let the people through. And over a period of two or three days, about 10,000 people tried to enter Ceuta, which is the other town, not, not Malia, which we're discussing now. And the Spanish authorities began a, a really unacceptable and frankly brutal process of just pushing people back over the border, summarily returning them without giving them, you know, people who have a legitimate claim for asylum without giving, it, giving them a chance to do, to do that. Seeing kids come over the border and, and sending them back without assessing whether or not, given that they're kids and they're minors, there ought to be an assessment of their needs or some sort of treatment of, of them not as adults. So that was a really, really sort of like shocking event. And then over the course of the year, there are these constant news stories in, in, in little pieces of, you know, of 30 or 40 people trying to make it over the fence or through the fence or onto one of the other tiny little peninsulas or islands that, that Spain has. And the typical pattern is that people get pushed back to Moroccan territory. And then from there on, they, they get taken elsewhere to the Morocco's other borders with the other, other African countries, or they just stay and they try again. What was different about this event? And I don't think Roy feels back yet. So what was different about this I, event? I, I'm here. I, right. I'm here. All right. So, so th thank you for the, for the background. Really, really helpful. Beforehand, you said the Moroccan authorities were somewhat passive. They were letting people go through. You also kind of painted a picture before the pandemic that there was a normal throughput of people going backwards and forwards from, from that border. So is it fairly safe to say then that since the pandemic, that border has been hermetically sealed, as well as now the Spanish authorities saying to the Moroccans, police your side of the border and police it, let's say, strictly. So there's a couple of things there. So you're right to say that the pandemic created a change in the dynamic around the border and the ability of it to be open. It, was, it wasn't open for a long while to just normal day-to-day -day business, let alone people who were trying to break through it, right? What so there, you, this is a show about geopolitics. There's a, there's a whole geopolitical story about that as well. So Morocco has within it a separatist movement in a part of Morocco called Western Sahara. During the pandemic, the political leader of the Western Sahara separatist movement came to Spain to get medical treatment because he was old and unwell. That created diplomatic furor. And, and, and Morocco just basically said, look, we're not cooperating with you, Spanish government, anymore. And that was around last summer when the Moroccan authorities effectively said, right, we're not, we, you want us to do, do your immigration enforcement as your partners in the South? We're not going to do it anymore. We're just going to put, hold our guns down and let tens of thousands of people cross. And it's your problem. Right. And, and so over the course of this year, at the beginning of this year, there's intense negotiation between Spanish and Moroccan governments. And basically a deal was struck that Spain would, Spain and Morocco would now cooperate a bit more closely on, on, on border controls as they had done previously, that the Moroccans would enforce border controls on their side, Spanish border police, the Guardia Civil would, would, would police the border on the Spanish side. It's, it's a really weird and tricky situation and a place because there, are, there's a, there's a need on both sides for, a regular day-to-day -day migration flows to go through go through these border checkpoints or multiple checkpoints around each city. But there's also a kind of like tacit understanding, a formal deal, is which involves 
the European countries like Spain subsidizing their their non-European partners like Morocco and Libya and others effectively to do their dirty work for them. And that's the situation we find ourselves in, is, is that European states basically hand off some of the more unsavory aspects of border control to their to their external partners. And that's something that needs to change because the cost of that, as as we've seen in these really horrific events, is that, you know, what we were seeing before was people were dying, people were getting beaten, people people weren't getting a fair shake at the asylum procedure, children were being pushed back over the border, but what we saw was two dozen people die. And that's a step change. So since the border's been closed, can people actually go and actually claim asylum? Or is it a case of you're all black, the border is closed, there is no way to do this? Is it just as, as fundamentally as simple as that? Well, I don't think it's quite as simple as that. I mean, at some level, that analysis about the the, the racism of, of the border is is something that I think we should talk about a bit more. But, you know, on on the 24th of June... Somewhere between 100 and 200 migrants made it through the fence and onto Spanish territory and got to what is like a a, a reception centre for arriving migrants asylum seekers in Spain and, you know, went through the process of establishing their asylum claims. And so, so you know, so, so a, a small number made it to the point that they were trying to get to, but a lot more were pushed back and a number of those people died in in the attempt so what i read and so i'm really the reason why you're, you're on the show was that the reason why there was such panic or at least one of the contributing reasons why there was so much panic was because the encampments before the, the encampments on before the 24th the moroccan police had raided them had taken people's money and, and belongings, which led to this kind of like wave of panic on the 24th. So then a lot of asylum seekers then rushed the fence. Is that a, a report that you've heard, that it was because of the brutal treatment of the people in the camps by the Moroccan police, which actually led to the panic, which then led to the, the death on the 24th? It's a report I've heard, Royfield, but it's not a report that we've been able to verify as Human Rights Watch. I work very much on the European side of things, and I rely on colleagues to to follow human rights issues in Morocco, you know, for the, the team that covers Morocco. It's a tricky question. I think I think it's probably fair to say, not just in Morocco, but in, in many of the sort of external frontier countries around Europe where people are try, are gathering and then trying to get into Europe, you have local law enforcement authorities, local organized crime, extortionists, just petty criminals making life difficult for the people who are gathered waiting to cross. Whether in this instance that particular, a particular police action was the, was the trigger for people deciding to cross the border en masse, I don't know. And I, I doubt we'll ever know, really. But... I think it's it's fair to say that black and Asian migrants, primarily black migrants, have a pretty terrible time, whether they're in a in living on a hillside in Morocco waiting to come into Spain or whether they're making their way through Libya to Italy or they're in Turkey trying to get to Greece or Bulgaria. The first report said that some twenty three people 
died while trying to climb the fence. And whether they were tear gassed by the Moroccan authorities, by the Spanish people, fell off the fencing and then were left out in the, in the broiling sun and given no medical attention for, for hours. What are the latest figures in terms of fatalities that you actually have? Because I know that figure has gone up considerably. Well, I mean, the, the, the figures, this is another thing that really bothers me, is, is the failure of authorities to establish the facts and allow people to examine things has led to really conflicting accounts of the number of figures. The, the most recent figure I've seen is one from, the, from Morocco's National Human Rights Commission from yesterday or earlier today, where they say... 23 people died. And, and they also say in their little report of, the, of their trip to Nador on the, on the Moroccan side that they've seen the bodies, that the number of bodies tallies with the number of reported deaths. You know, moments like this are really difficult to assess. You know, NGOs on the ground who are hearing reports from people who are, who are traumatized or who've seen somebody die but may know them by their real name and their nickname, you know, it can lead to all sorts of confusion. And so I think probably what we know right now, the, the most accurate figure we have is that 23 people have died. But, you know, that that is subject to change. We, you know, the, the, the Spanish human rights ombudsman who I was talking about earlier was saying that he, he literally has asked for the number of people who died and he has not been told that. Right. So the person who is tasked with investigating on the Spanish side is saying to the media, look, I'm s sitting around waiting for this information. I still don't know how many people died. And that's precisely why establishing these things is so important. And, and you know, one of the things that we I might be skipping forward to, to where you stand in your narrative. But one of the things that we emphasized in the publication we put out a couple of days after this happened is was was based on really worrying reports at the time that graves were being dug hastily to dispose of bodies. And it was it was, you know, one of the things that we called for was ensuring that everybody who had died was identified or efforts were made to identify them, to identify the next of kin and then to also do autopsies to make sure that the cause of death was was clear and was clarified, right? So some people would have died in, a, in what may have been a stampede. Some people may have died from being crushed. Some people may have died as a result of physical injuries, beatings, being hit by something. Some people may have been died as a result of not receiving medical attention in a timely manner. Some people may have died because, you know, the tear gas got to them. We really just don't know. And all we can do is speculate and in the absence of autopsies and evidence, and actual physical material proof of what happened to these people, those questions about how many, how they died, where they died, did they die on the scene, did they die en route to the hospital, did they die awaiting treatment, all those things are really open questions. The Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez described the mass crossing as a violent assault and an attack on the territorial integrity of Spain. The, the images prom really promoted widespread revulsion within Spain. There were mass demonstrations in Valencia, Madrid, various other cities. Could you speak, if you can at all, can you speak to maybe some of the political ramifications of what happened actually within the body politic of Spain? right now? First things first, on the issue of, of probably, anybody who's watched the footage has probably seen at least some pictures 
some of the migrants holding either sticks or stones, right? So, but 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 a small number, like that, you know, I, I wouldn't say two thousand people attacked with sticks and stones. So, at, at some level, the, the narrative of, of a degree of violence is is based on sort of like a, a grain of fact. The the response from the Spanish state in in the initial moments was was frank from the Spanish prime minister. I think frankly was shameful. He congratulated Moroccan forces, Moroccan border forces on a job well done and thanked them for their cooperation. Now, you can understand from a diplomatic, political kind of place where why why a leader might say that. He, you know, he, Spain had just spent a great deal of effort mending fences, sorry to use that metaphor, mending fences with the Moroccans and sort of putting back in place the border deal. But the fact that 23 people had died or or 17 as was believed at the time that he made a statement could lead a head, a head of government to to say publicly that it was a job well done is is frankly appalling now there was a political fallout for that in spain spain has a left a center left and left coalition ruling coalition the prime minister from the center left parties left further to the left coalition partners really took exception at this at this description, as did wider civil society, sort of, as you said, demonstrating on the streets of various Spanish cities, as well as, you know, migrants demonstrating in Nador and in Rabat in, in Morocco to say, you know, identify our friends are dead. And and I think all that took, you know, had an effect on, on the prime minister. And he's since come out and said, look, I said that before I'd seen the images. I said it, you know, when I was in Brussels traveling. But frankly... It tells, it tells you a lot, and I hate to be blunt about this, but it tells you a lot that a head of a head of government can just glibly say something like "a job well done, thank you for your cooperation," because fundamentally, what is, what is at stake is black and brown lives. You know, I doubt that kind of like glib and quick statement would have been made had other lives been been at stake. The Moroccan Association of Human Rights also have accused the Morocco of trying to cover up the deaths, as you've kind of noticed, saying that after six days after the tragedy, not one autopsy has been carried out and there'd be no efforts to identify those who have been killed. You've said there have been demonstrations in Rabat and also in Nador. How seriously are the Moroccans taking this tragedy? And according to one of the NGOs, and this is Walking Borders, they've now said they've confirmed 37. So the number seems to be going up all the time. But what's the effect that this has maybe had on Moroccan politics? I can't speak to Moroccan politics, Royfield. It's just not an is- issue area I'm qualified to speak about or know anything about. Fair enough. They're angry and sad. They say their friends were killed by the Moroccan police when last week they tried to jump the border fence between Morocco and the Spanish territory, Melilla. Now they seek answers from the United Nations Refugee Agency here in Morocco. We went to the city next to Melilla and they beat us badly. They killed our friends and family. The Moroccan government said there were 23 dead, but we know there are more than 70. It's inhumane. The protesters want to be allowed to identify the dead so they can inform relatives back home. 
They are also angry at the violence used by Moroccan authorities. The Spanish and Moroccan governments have launched separate probes into the deaths, but many are calling for an impartial investigation. We call on the two countries to ensure an effective and independent investigation is held as a first step towards establishing the circumstances of the deaths and injuries and any possible responsibilities, and to ensure that accountability is guaranteed as appropriate. Dozens of those who attempted to scale the fence have been detained and are facing trial. They are charged with attacking security officials and human trafficking. Back on the border between Morocco and Melilla, workers repair the border fence. Still, the migrants keep coming, and it's unlikely a reinforced fence will deter them from trying to cross again. The UN Secretary General has added his voice to, to, to many who are concerned about the events at the border, and he said, I'm shocked by the violence at Nador <clears throat> Melilla, which re resulted in the deaths of dozens of migrants and asylum seekers. What could, should the UN do about the situation with this border, but also with the wider issue to do with migrants from the global south travelling north? Because this is something which is only getting worse in terms of the, the amount of people who are travelling north and people being denied legitimate asylum and being treated like cattle? Mm. It's a tough question. There's two parts to it. The first part has to do with what, what these international organisations should do and, and the second to do with, with the actual situation of the border. I'm going to take the second part first. Look, we're talking about the death of 20, 23 people established as fact. Some NGOs report 37. But we're talking about a couple of dozen people, right, who died on one day on a land border where they were visible. Our understanding from data held by the, by the UN Refugee Agency is that something like 35 or 36,000 people tried to arrive by sea from the West African shore to the Canary Islands, which belong to, to Spain and are sort of off the African coast, of whom an estimated 1,000 died over the course of last year. 1,000 people dying in that stretch of sea. Similarly, in the central, Mediter central Mediterranean between Libya and Italy, there's thousands of people dying. And these are deaths that, you know, they happen on a daily, near daily basis. And they're kind of un unnoted, unremarked, these deaths at sea. It's important that a moment like this, the one we're talking about, focuses people's attention and makes people think about the horrific human cost of European border policy. I think one of the things that, that governments, that the European governments should do and the international organizations sort of supervising their behavior should do is to push for much more in the way of safe and legal routes over frontiers rather than securitizing and policing and arming borders more and more. They need to improve the mechanisms by which the European border agency called Frontex works, the way it deals with allegations of human rights violations and abuses. They need to really stop doing deals with, with, with partner states that they know are routinely and regularly abusive, migrants and asylum seekers on their territory who are trying to make it to Europe. The case that, you know, most routinely comes to mind for me is, this, is 
frankly, infernal situation that migrants have to suffer, endure in, in Libya before make, trying to make the journey by sea to Italy. And, you know, when, when people are handed back to the Libyan Coast Guard to be taken back to Libyan land, European countries know that they're not going back to, to somewhere that's nice for them. They're, they know they're going back to horrific abuse. And those sorts of policies really need to change. I mean, the, 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 one of the things that moments like this ought to be able to demonstrate to us and to a wider public is that the cost of the desire for border control is death. And death on a really horrific scale. And if, and if that sort of broader moral failure, human rights failure, is something that a moment like this can help us reach, then, then let's try and get there. You're listening to a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. You can find us on any one of your regular podcatchers. We are discussing the death of, dependent on which NGOs report you believe, some 27, could be 37, 23 African migrants who were trying to seek asylum in Spain on the border between Nador and Meila in northern Morocco. This happened on June 24th. The videos have been circulating on social media, and they make for utterly harrowing viewing. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're in the audience and you would like to raise your hand and ask a question, now is that time. I was passed on a video via social media by, by Dr. Dan, a good friend of mine on this app. So, Dr. Dan, it's only right and proper that I pass the mic to you to ask a question or to make a point, sir. Yeah, thank you, Roy Field. Yeah, I, it was definitely concerning looking at the map so I have a good idea of the areas. And it looks like in the Dormelila border, actually borders the Borean Sea. So I assume there's an area. So over into that territory, over that gate, it becomes Spain territory. Is that correct? 
And if that's the case, it sounds like the insults or injuries that were inflicted on these folks who were trying to get over to the border were inflicted by their own, at least on their side of the border. There was satellite images that I also saw where they had graves and the ground that was uh, perturbed on the day of the event and not prior to that. So on the 23rd, everything was fine. 24th and 25th onwards, there were a perturbation of the of the ground by satellite images, there were evidence of graves that were already dug and why they didn't give them care or to so they could cover up either injuries or or what had transpired. So those are all concerning for me in terms of human rights violations. And what are the solutions and how do we, you know, when, when we hear things like this, how do we advocate? Whose role is it? And I think those types of things are, will be something I would like to hear because it was really, I was just really irritated and I, I posted it all around, called all my media friends and, and colleagues just to talk about this stuff. These are the things we don't see. And of course, the racial issue should not be overlooked. Some some told me, you know, hey, this is not what's going on yeah, over in, in Russia and tried to address those things. While I don't like to compare things, there are some things that are clear that they they were not welcome to make an exodus, but there are other things that we sometimes don't see. So the people on the ground have a better understanding. So I don't try to rush to judgment, but the optics were very bad. I'm done speaking. Thank you, Dr. Dan. What an eloquent set of things and a, and a wide ranging set of things you've said. I, you know, I don't even know where to begin with, with, with the many things that you've asked us to consider other than to say that, you know, We've got to zoom out of what this is and sort of see the big picture things and then zoom in and also think about what, you know, concrete solutions mean for those who were injured in this moment or those who were killed in this moment and those who've lost their loved one in this moment. So the big picture, I think, you know, like I've tried to do, zooming out, thinking about the, the, the thousands of people who die trying to make a journey to Europe on a regular basis, the racialized nature of the violence at the border. You know, the fact that this isn't just about Europe and, and Africa and the Middle East, you know, the, the same weekend, if I'm not mistaken, that these 23 or more people died on this border between Spain and Morocco, I think more than 50 people died of heat exhaustion in the back of a truck, an abandoned truck in, in South Texas, migrating to the United States. You know, pe people are dying making these dangerous journeys the world over, and Part of the reason they're dying is because of these abusive and, frankly, structurally very violent policies that, that wealthy countries have to keep people out. And the deals they do with, with, the deals they do with people who, with governments who, you know, they, they, they try to get on side to keep people out. But at a more concrete level, I think, you know, thinking about what, what should matter and what should make sense. Sorry, I'm trying to follow the chat and being really quite distracted by it. I may try and close that window because there's, there's a debate about whether or not the comments make sense or don't. But to come back to the, the really concrete tragedy here, you know, for each person who died, their dignity and death requires them, requires authorities to make their best effort to identify them to identify their next of kin, to repatriate them. You know, I'm not suggesting that is in any way going to make things better or like improve border policy, but in terms of what happened to them, that's important. For those who 
were injured or witnessed their friends being killed. Appropriate, good medical treatment, including psychosocial support, is really important. For those guys who made it through the fence and are in in a reception holding in Melilla, it's really important that they know what happened to their friends that they that they lost and ones that they think may be dead but are actually well, you know, those sorts of things really matter. And then establishing what happened to those people on that day through the evidence that can be gathered through an autopsy is really important for identifying who did what when and what happened to those people in the process in which they died. Now, none of that is a is a pleasant business. But, you know, bodies carry traces of injury. Those traces of injury tell us what happened. They tell us if a person died because they just couldn't breathe because they were being crushed, you know. And it and again, to bring this back to the bigger level like we're talking about, you know, this is on the European and African border a version of that that slogan that we know from the United States of a black man on the floor saying, I can't breathe. And then, you know, his breath giving out and him him leaving us, right? This is that. It's all part of the same kind of broader level of callousness in relation to certain types of life. Frank, I don't know if you want to speak, but if you have a point, now would be a great time to raise it. Yeah, thank you, Roy, for, for covering this, and thank you, Kartik, for being with us. I would like to put a magnifying glass onto that point of data gathering with which everybody works from then on, publishers, policymakers, scientists, and even historians. So, Kartik, can you give a detailed description of the interaction between journalism as it is covered by press agencies like Reuters and more independent sources and the agencies that are witnessing the original site, including the state's police or international agencies like Human Rights Watch, so that we can understand the bias that each of those brings in and how the objective facts that a majority of those could agree on are established. Thank you. That's a great question. Thanks, Frank. I really do think establishing facts is important. And that's kind of part of what we do, which is why, you know, for instance, some of the things I say may to, to activist ears sound a little bit like I'm, I'm not acknowledging their truth, you know, where somebody, where an organization says, we think 37 people died. I'm willing to acknowledge that they think 37 people died, but what I can say is the facts so far tell us that 23 people died. Facts based on an or, a reputable organization having visited the morgue and seen the bodies. Right. So what happened on the day? I think there's like a really interesting triangulation of, of videos. There's videos from the Moroccan side, primarily taken by human rights NGOs who were who realized something was happening. There's the Moroccan Human Rights Association in, in Nador, excuse me, that took a lot of the footage that circulated around social media. Some of it, by the way, if you haven't seen it, a little bit of content warning, it is really, really heavy stuff to watch it is disturbing you will see people get injured and you'll see people either die or you're not sure if they're dead or alive it's it's really truly truly horrific from the spanish side we have journalists and maybe some activists i don't know but primarily journalists but like sort of activist journalists taking 
video footage and photographs of the Spanish police's action and then what they think they identify as some Moroccan border guards crossing over onto the Spanish side in order to escort some of the migrants back who've been apprehended by the Spanish authorities. Now, whether that should happen or not, I don't know. It's an, it's an extreme irregularity if, for one country to be doing border policing on the territory of another country, if, it, if that is indeed what happened. I think what we need, you know, and, and around all this, various news agencies, New York Times did some geolocation of, of some of the information. We tried to do some geolocation around the graves that had been dug based on geospatial mapping stuff that, you know, colleagues who know how to do that, I don't, but those colleagues did. And what we're doing is we're all working sort of, you know, on our own little projects. And I think a, a good systematic, empowered investigation with some degree of international authority that is able to pull together these all these different pieces of information. And crucially, the, the missing piece in all this is is the the evidence held by the states. You know, like like I've said a couple of times, the 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 Spanish human rights ombudsman keeps saying, look, they're not producing any evidence for me. They're not giving me what I'm asking for. When all that stuff comes together, I think things will probably become much more clear. And I think, you know, the question you asked, Frank, about, you know, which information is, is most valid and how does information highlight our, our, our biases? I think, yes, obviously, you know, all information we look at is at some level tainted by the perceptions we come to it with. But I think we can reasonably agree on some things being fact. And, and, and a process like that might help establish some of that fact. But I realize we're getting close to the end of the hour and I've talked an awful lot. So I would be keen to, to hear any other questions or to give it back to your Royfield. Thank you for that, Kartik. And yeah, we will end on the hour. So Piotr Curzon, make your question, your point, make it a succinct one, sir. And then we'll get Eugene in and then we will wrap up. But Piotr. Kartik, nice to hear you again. I don't know if you remember, but I've we encountered one another. I was with Crisis Group for a bit and the, the overlap that you guys have. I remember working on a few things that I think you were a part of as well. So it's great to, great to be connected again. And I appreciated your points in depth. Just on this point, so my main question framing as a comment, I'm curious for your take, is that, you know, we're seeing a huge shift in the Sahel now with the drawdown of the French forces and the invitation by the, the Malian government, particularly basically just to bring in the Wagner group, parts of the Russians. Now, albeit we don't know how much they're going to be able to influence the matters because of their focus on Ukraine. But I'm curious, given the instability and the sort of shifting power dynamics of that region, also the coup in Burkina Faso not too long ago, what do you think that that's going to do for migration flows towards Morocco and, and therefore towards that? part of Europe because relative to say Greece in 2015 Western Africa has seen very marginal blows and and generally sort of the also the problem with the Western Sahara proletarian front there's a lot of just unknowns around the region so I'm just curious for your take on since we're on the bigger picture about what the geopolitical dynamics could play into the humanitarian elements and the ability for you know human rights watch and others to to help combat that Thanks. Piotr, uh, it's good to hear from you. I'm going to give you a really unsatisfactory answer, which is to say that is not an issue that I, I personally focus on a, a great deal. The uncertainties of geopolitics and the changing nature of geopolitics will mean that migration flows go one way or another, but they're unlikely to, unlikely to stop. And so what is crucial is establishing safe and legal routes and minimizing the sorts of abusive practices that we see. So, you know, during the during the two years of the, the, the pandemic and sort of like sealing off of the Greek-Turkish border, we actually did see 
an increase in numbers of people trying to make the the sea route journey from the west northwest coast of Africa towards Canary Islands. There was a significant up- uptick in the number of people. And then depending on the ebbs and flows of the conflict in Libya, conflicts in Libya, you know, we, we see changes in the number of people making, you know, trying to make the sea journey to, to Italy and Malta. What is going to happen with further instability in the Sahel in terms of migration flows and the numbers of people arriving at any specific border? I don't know. Your guess is, is as good as mine. An informed person's guess which yours is more than mine, is probably better. But I think what it does, greater instability is going to lead to more people being uprooted and needing to, to find safety or to find somewhere to make a decent living. And, and that will inevitably, sadly, likely increase the number of people who are, who are trying to flee those countries and, and, and find, uh, find safety elsewhere. Thank you for that answer. Eugene, you have the honour of being the last person to ask a question on today's show. Yeah, thank you. I actually, I read this news like when it happened and it seems like it went unnoticed pretty much. It's strange. I checked, I googled and I read that so many people died and it seems like it didn't get much attention in the Western media. So yeah, it's, it's a big dilemma. Like how do we solve such crisis? Because this is like the difference between Africa and the Europe uh, is going to be huge for a long time. And such things, I don't know how, how can we solve it. And I did, you know, I saw a documentary a few years ago on Deutsche Welle about smuggling in these Spanish cities in Morocco. Did you see this video when this old ladies uh, carrying huge bags on their backs because of this stupid policy, like a person can... Uh, carry like what do you call hand package or with you if you carry it on yourself there is no limitation on kilograms so these uh, ladies they carry huge bags with some products and like 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 legal smuggling and it's also appalling to see it happening and i know who who allows this and uh, yeah the only question uh, maybe i missed maybe you discussed this like these people they try to get into this uh, spanish cities which are in africa but if if they successfully get to the cities uh, what was their plan how how, do, how does anybody get from this spanish city to the mainland spain because it's in africa right so how, how does it work thanks Eugene, just to, I'll say a couple of quick things because I realize we're on the hour. I think what in less pressured times where there's fewer people making the journey, what is typically supposed to happen is that when people arrive in the Spanish cities of Ceuta and Melilla, they can go to what is called the temporary temporary staying center or temporary residence center for migrants. They can register. They can say they would like to make an asylum claim. They get a bed for the you know the period that they're in Ceuta and Melilla while they're claim is being processed. What we've seen over the past couple of decades is a serious overcrowding of those centres and those, you know, a lot of people's asylum claims not being treated particularly well or carefully. Um, a number of people do actually get transferred from, from those centres to this, the Spanish mainland, the peninsula. Some people get transferred with, a, you know, some sort of temporary residence permit. Some people get transferred to effectively immigration detention centers in in the Spanish peninsula from which they are then deported to the countries that they came from. So those are the two, two routes. And then some people try and 
make their way in irregular manners by stowing away across on boats or whatever to 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 make it from the Spanish territories in North Africa to the to the Spanish peninsula. In terms of you know why this story was ignored, I, you know, it's it's really hard. You know, Human Rights Watch publishes a lot of news every week. We cover a lot of human rights issues around the world. For whatever reason, that week the 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 piece that we published that got the most number of people reading it was was about this. So, at some level, some people are paying attention. But I I totally agree with you that not enough people are paying attention. And I think one thing that can make a real difference is some of the sort of reporting that that I've seen by some of the Spanish media actually who've who've done frankly a really good and a really human job of of going to Morocco and interviewing survivors of this event and interviewing some of the survivors who were in the temporary residence center in in Melilla about this event and telling their stories telling their stories of the journeys they've taken the difficulties they faced the people they've lost along the way and i think that sort of humanizing of the difficulties and the lives and experiences of these people of of the people whose whose lives were lost and you know the people who are making a similar journey in future or who have made a similar journey in the past and the humanizing of that is something that will, that can and hopefully will make a difference to the way the broader public sees this and the way governments slowly slowly wake up to their own humanity thank you kartik raj for coming on to mid atlantic and explaining the dreadful shocking events of june 24th you put very eloquently that we that we need to pay attention all of us as citizens of our own countries and of global citizens need to pay attention to people who are traversing the globe for want of a better life sometimes they're fleeing persecution sometimes they just want a better start for themselves and for their families and it's actually migrants who are helping to prop up all of our economies as our as demographics show that all of our countries are actually getting older and there's a disproportionate weight on social services because our populations are aging so we actually do need migrants all throughout the the the, the global north and those migrants do come from from the global south we need to pay attention to that we need to be mindful of the travails that that we put these people through so they do so they can actually do some of the most uh, unenviable jobs in all of our societies the things that we don't want to do and and basically they're paying for that with their lives so again Kartik Raj I'd like to thank you for coming on to the show and explaining exactly what happened or at least what you can verify that actually happened whether it's 23 37 or some people even say e- even more deaths but there were too many and the the callous brutality and negligence of the Moroccan and Spanish officials is there to see on all of the social media posts and it's something which we shouldn't just get angry about for a moment but we should actually petition our our politicians who govern on our behalf and the UN and other human rights organizations to to drill down into exactly what happened and to make sure that those who are complicit in what happened are held accountable and the right punishments are then doled out but then also specifically on that border that the right steps are put in place so that people who are legitimately fleeing from persecution can actually be processed as asylum seekers and actually gain legal entry into Spain
So again, Kartik Raj, thank you for coming on to the show. You've been a total star, sir. For all those people who listen to the podcast, and there are a goodly thousand of you that listen to each episode, if you want to respond specifically to this, why don't you send me an email? Quite simply, it's royfield at gmail.com, R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com and make your voice heard. If you're in the audience, why don't you hit the little green icon, the little house over in the top left, and you can become a member of Mid-Atlantic. So whenever we go live with these rooms, you will be alerted. Why don't you all give Kartik a round of applause by giving him a follow? It means that maybe he'll stay on the app and uh, he'll, he'll knock around and, and also be a clubhouse person like we are. And, and also give Dr. Dan, Piotr and Eugene a little bit of a follow if you don't follow them already. Uh, I always say this, but I think it's incredibly, uh, incredibly apt. I always say left to centre politics is right thinking politics, but we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters. And what Mid-Atlantic is all supposed to be about is meeting people in the commons, the common space where we can talk about issues and, and, and try and find the truth behind them then hopefully together with discussion we can find some solutions that's been me royfield brown discussing the spanish and moroccan i will use the word slaughter of africans in melilla in june 24th this will happen again somewhere but let's keep our eyes peeled and let's make sure that those who perpetrate this negligence on other human beings are held to account and let's make sure that we don't demonize people who are trying to find a better life for themselves considering the vast majority of us live in societies and economies that actually need migrants. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.